0: Again, this is bread and butter EM, it's worse first, and we think this way, we're born to think this way, we're trained to think this way. When the
1: patient says at the end of the visit, doctor, do you have a private practice? You just hit the ball out of the park. That's kind of what you're looking for. You're looking for them to leave saying, geez, they, they did a good job here. Hello and welcome, Rick V. Cotter without, unfortunately, Greg Henry today, who is having technical difficulties beyond our control. This is the uh, March issue of Risk Management Monthly uh, being recorded on March 31st. We're sliding right into home plate, barely touching it. My guest, well, Rachel's not a guest anymore. Rachel is on the line, but we do have a terrific guest. Uh, This fellow I've known for 25 years. He's an emergency physician. He's still working shifts, did three shifts last weekend. He started 15 businesses, 15 businesses, uh, three went belly up. He sold 12. He sold 12 businesses. His most recent sale was this little startup he sold it to called Walmart, where he sold his telemedicine business. And in his spare time, he's written 12 books, uh, mostly on you know, entrepreneurial issues in uh, in medicine and otherwise. A lot of them are related to kind of uh, you know characteristics of those who start businesses and, and those kinds of things. They're excellent. Uh, available on Amazon. The most recent book is called um, Entrepreneurial RX. John Schufeld, welcome, welcome, welcome. I appreciate your coming on. Uh, you are in Scottsdale with Rachel. Uh, also in Scottsdale. And uh, we've got a little outline. We've got a ton of stuff to talk about. But before we start, John, I, I asked you to give us the secret sauce. You've reviewed a ton of cases. You're still doing expert witness, witnessing. What do we need to know to keep doctors out of trouble other than knowing how to do the clinical medicine, how to diagnose the PE, those kinds of things? what other things i think there's a lot of system related issues and process related issues that get doctors in trouble too so welcome and um, we're ready for the we we want, we want the the un, unfettered answer here so we can
0: stop doing this publication for the last 12 years this just tells us what we need to do thank you i first off i'm honored to be here as i mentioned to you uh, previously i've been listening to you and uh, you and Greg and then you, Greg and uh, Rachel for a long time. So thanks for the opportunity. Okay, so let's talk about not getting sued as an emergency physician. Um, and I have seen a lot of cases over the years. Uh, you know, Part of my sideline, I, I do practice law. So I look at uh, some cases in that realm as well. And there's a, there are a couple issues that seem to be recurrent. And this is like that book, everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten sort of thing. So I don't think I'm going to tell anybody anything that's going to shock them, um, but, uh, but I'll try. So the first one is simply in, be kind. And, you know, I don't know, this is probably seven or eight years ago, I listened to one that you guys did, and Greg Henry said, not only be kind to the patient, but, but enlist their family as well. Get to know their family, ask them questions, enlist them in the care of the patient. And that could not be more true, and I still think of this today. But being kind has worked unfailingly well for me, and you know there are. Plenty, I work in an inner city ED in Phoenix, and there's a lot of times I walk out of the room and I just shake my head and just like you know did th- I really just have that conversation? The most recent was when with uh, when I asked the I asked a, a couple, but I asked a woman if she was vaccinated, and she pointed to the cross on the wall, and I looked at her and I said, "Jesus told you not to be vaccinated," and she said. No, the um, vaccine has aborted fetuses in it. And I said, ma'am, I said, that is categorically not true. And she snapped at me and she said, I'm a science teacher. I read it on Google. Now, you couldn't make this up. And there was a large part of me that was just like, okay, drop the mic, I'm out. But then I thought, what possible good does this do? So I literally had to bite my tongue um, like I just had a seizure and sit down on the side of the bed, and I did not bother explaining the science to them, of course, but I did do whatever I could to make them feel like they were heard and respected. I've seen so many cases over the years where the medicine may not have been great, but it wasn't bad, but for whatever reason, the physician, the advanced practice clinician, and the patient didn't hit it off, and the patient left there mad, They left there feeling disrespected and when there was an issue the first thing they thought of was i'm gonna make him pay and good bad or indifferent they tried now the good news for us physicians is you know very very few percentage of malpractice cases actually get reported even less uh, are picked up by a plaintiff's med mal attorney and even less of those go to mediation or to trial and when they do go to trial all the stats are we physicians win at least about 60% of them, maybe maybe even a little more. So we've got we've got a lot on our side, but but that said, even going through these cases is very difficult. I've had colleagues go through them who've they've questioned everything after that. And one of the questions is do they still want to practice medicine? And it's really set them on their heels. So I would say the first thing is simply, again, not rocket science, be kind. The second is I've seen it and I've seen physicians square off with patients. The physician says, hey, I think you ought to do X. The patient says, no, I don't want to. And then all of a sudden it becomes a battle of egos. And, and I've seen it happen again again and again over years. And then the physician's like, well, I'm going to make you sign out AMA. And, and, and they use it as kind of a sledgehammer, or a threat against the patient. And again, they're not being very kind. And they're not really doing what we're supposed to do, which is advocate. And so patients don't want to follow my advice all the time. I mean, think of all the people that come in with the worst headache of their life and they have a negative LP or a negative CT and you think, okay, you probably need to have an LP and you go over this informed consent discussion with them and they say no. And I always say, look, my job is like an auto mechanic. I advise you what I think needs to be done. I support it with whatever thing I can come up with, literature, textbooks, what have you, my years of experience. If you don't want to, that's okay as long as you understand the risks. If you understand the risks and you're competent, it's all good. I write it down in the chart, um, and you don't have to sign an AMA, and I welcome you back if you decide you want it done because I still, I still think you need the test, but it's all good. And so I go way out of my way for those patients just to simply make sure they're heard, respected. And again, their body, their choice, if they're competent, uh, it's all good. Hey, John, this is a hot topic. This is, it goes into
1: the shared decision-making Rachel, any thoughts on this um, issue because it does come up. And uh, I read a study that basically said that if you do even a little shared decision-making, the likelihood of people uh complaining or filing or trying to, to go to a lawyer is substantially reduced, even with a little, uh, as John was outlining. And so for a risk management kind of thing to do, to have them involved in the decision and and if they choose not to do what you recommend, to not kind of say, Well, you my way, or the highway, or you can leave kind of thing. That's you see that happening. Any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean. I was kind of nodding along with John there because I can't remember the last time I actually had somebody sign out AMA because I think in general it's um, it it kind of uh, highlights the conflict you're having with the patient when really you're trying to just be on the same team with the patient and as John was saying, kind of help them understand, you know, give them what you think is the best option for them and then help them make uh, the right decision, which you know. They might they might make a different decision than you would in their situation. Uh, John was using the word competence, where I would use the word capacity. Uh, uh, getting but,
1: technical here,
2: but I would say if you are having that discussion and they are making a decision that you think, you know, they are they are weighing the risks differently than you would, and it you know a different position might have them sign out AMA, um, and they're make, maybe making a decision again that that you think. You would make a different one in that in their their place, or most reasonable people would make a different one. I would just make sure that you're documenting their capacity in the chart and kind of doing an informal assessment of that and documenting that clearly, because that's one place where I think we can go wrong very easily. And you can imagine, you know, a family backtracking and saying, "How could you let them make this decision?" And it's on you to document that, in fact, that person did have capacity to make that decision. And you know, you can you can fill that in with a bunch of examples and a person. Let's just use John John's example. Had the worst headache of their life. They don't want the LP. They go home and they're found dead of their subarachnoid the next day. You know, family can backtrack and say, clearly they didn't have capacity because they had their ruptured subarachnoid. And if you didn't document, you know, that you had this discussion with the patient, they were able to kind of reiterate the risks. You know, why they didn't want this. That you know they they clearly understood it. Um, you know, essentially the capacity assessment, if you don't have that documented, then it's just that he said, she said, and a, a dead person, and that's more difficult to defend. And so that's kind of all I would add to that. I haven't seen the study you're talking about where it suggests that, you know, there's actually objective evidence to say that shared decision-making decreases liability uh, risks.
1: Actually, I will, I will, in our notes uh, appended, it. Uh, it was a study actually done an internet study uh, ask and presenting cases to them in which there was no shared decision-making, a little shared decision-making, or a lot of shared decision-making. And then they asked them, and, and the outcome didn't wasn't good. And um, so they asked them, what's your likelihood to complain or, or go to a lawyer? And it was 12% would go if there was uh, a little decision-making, would go if there's a lot of decision-making and 41% would, would complain if there was no decision-making. So that it was now, you know, it's hard to do these kinds of studies other than through surveys and you don't know, you know, whether that's extrapolatable to the whole, but there's so much discussion now about shared decision-making and the importance of it and how, patients uh, appreciate it. Now, some of them are going to say, hey, listen, you're the doc, you decide kind of thing. And you, we heard that all the time. But uh, I think that given all of their knowledge from the internet, and Dr. Google, and all these other things, that um, it's fair to incorporate their their processes, because you don't know what their values are. They may have different values than you in terms of uh, where they want to go with this stuff. So, John, we all ag- agree. And shared decision-making is, is important and you got to freaking be nice. It's part of the job. It's, it's not optional. You know, some of these doctors say, Hey, my job is to fix a problem. No, that's not your job. Your job is to fix a
0: problem and make these people feel that they've had a positive experience with you. Right. And I mean, we've all seen, you know, we've all seen the smartest physicians in the world and uh, drive patients crazy and the patients don't listen to their advice, not because it wasn't great advice because they don't trust the guy or the woman making the, you know, giving them the advice. And so it behooves you if you're trying to do well by the patient to be kind to them. You know, another one I see is, and again, this is bread and butter EM it's worse first. And we think this way we're born to think this way. We're trained to think this way. And yet I've seen more examples of somebody who orders the D-dimer It's incredibly elevated for the patient with pleuritic chest pain and shortness of breath. And then they ignore it and send the patient home. And not only do they ignore it, but they don't even address it. Like, okay, fine. You ignore it because X, Y, Z, all good. But at least write something down. Then the patient comes back with a PE and and has a poor outcome. I'm like, dude, you did the test to confirm what you are worried about. And then you ignored it. And I've seen this happen again and again, oftentimes with D-dimer, but with with a whole host of other things. So don't order the test unless you're going to react to it. You know, again, this is probably another Greg Henry one about over-ordering tests, and believe me, I'm guilty of it. But if you're going to do it, follow up on it. And that leads me to chest x-rays. Order a lot of chest x-rays, but God forbid the radiologist says, oh, by the way, you know, there's no pneumonia, there's no X. However, there's this Blah, 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 nodule. You've got to make sure the patient follows up on that. The, the, the literature is replete and the court documents are replete with these missed incidentalomas that go on to become something um, bad and the patient has a bad outcome. And we had the we had the ability to raise the flag and we didn't.
2: And you saying that you had the discussion with the patient saying, I told them about it. If you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. We've said that over and over again, but worth reiterating.
0: Exactly. And I literally have been involved in the case with this right now. Well, I told them they should probably go to this other facility where they have these experts and the pay and the parents didn't want to. Great. If that was the case, I don't know why they wouldn't, but if that was the case, fine. Parents go, they never told us this. And now they've got a dead child. And so, you know, what's the what's the jury gonna believe? the next one is it goes back to the first one nurses now literally nurses save me every shift i work and they call to me constantly and go hey john are you sure you want to do this hey you know i noticed this but you know you know i, I ordered vecuronium or i just ordered uh rocuronium 10 milligrams on a patient the other day this big dude and they're like, going, don't you mean 100 milligrams? I'm like, oh, hundred. no wonder he was hard to innovate. 100 milligrams. And what I found is if you treat them respectfully as they should and kindly and bring them food or buy lunch for everybody, it goes such a long way. I've seen nurses be like, you know, every time I talk to that provider, they bite my head off. So the hell with it, you know? Oh, well, I'm not going to tell them. If there's, a, if there's an issue, let them figure it out themselves. And it's, it doesn't sell well. And it certainly does not portend well for the patient. Yeah, you definitely want the nurses
1: on, on your side for sure. And one of the people that I know basically at the beginning of the shift greets all the nurses. At the end of the shift, see that he thanks all the nurses. And this is a, a routine every time he does it. Uh, and I think that they basically appreciate being acknowledged, and especially now. You know, when so many of them are leaving nursing and, you know, I just talked to one of the docs at USC and they're so dis. the physicians are so discouraged because they never have enough nurses.
0: There's just, it's, and, and there's no, there's no fix for it. Yeah. It's it's, but I, I've seen so many issues where the physician I've had a couple of physicians I've heard say, listen, I'm the doctor. You're only a nurse. Um, I'll you know, I'll take your opinion if you' ever to medical school. I mean, something that oh Jesus, ridiculous. I'm like, dude, you have just signed your death warrant? Um, no good will come from it. Okay. And the final thing is, again, this is something we all know, but I still see people do it. Do not write negative things in the medical record about the patient, including things like drug seeking behavior. the The patient owns a medical record. and and when they go and ask for it and you <laughs> they see all these negative or pejoratives in it, it's not going to help your case first off they're going to put the whole chart up on the wall in the courtroom and you're gonna have to read it line by line and feel horrible and secondly you know they'll think you have and rightly so some bias against this patient so i saw a case a few years ago frequent flyer in the emergency department which you should not write either comes in looking for pain medication patient had a history of iv drug use they also had a history of narcotic seeking uh, with severe back pain So, you can guess the rest of the story. Um, They were thrown out of the emergency department, and guess what they had? Spinal epidural abscess, and now are paralyzed. And the person in the medical record went to great lengths to describe how this person was, you know, abusing the system and drug-seeking behavior. Probably never examined the patient, um, and then the patient had a bad outcome. Hung out to dry and deservedly so. And then finally, that goes along with don't change the medical record. It's hard to deal with EHRs nowadays because everything's in a metaphile underneath what's which all the attorneys ask for. Um, but changing the medical record, pulling things from the medical record, uh, if you're still on paper, God forbid, um, it will, it will, you will get hung out to dry.
2: Can and you explain? They,
0: go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was
2: just going to say most people probably understand, but I don't know that everyone does. Can you explain the idea of a metaphile?
0: Sure. So a a metafile is the file, think of it as a file underneath the medical record, and it's everything, corrections at all, that are written on the medical record. So if you write something to be funny, I saw one that said, this obnoxious, foul-smelling patient uh, reports to the ED yet again, uh, acted obnoxious and demanding drugs, and then erased. Um, So no one sees it, right? Well, it's actually still in the metafile. So when the attorney Asked for the metadata, the meta file, to, to, along with the medical records that was in there. Um, and again, throws it up on the wall of the courtroom. Ha ha, it was funny at the time, not really. And now the person is literally looks like a total jerk and it gets no sympathy from the jury. There was, uh, what's the law that was
1: passed recently? It was it called the Clear Law, which allows the patients to uh, uh, see their own files? Without making, you know, a request of medical records and that's all that, that they had to do before, that, that it's much easier. They can just go on to the Internet and look at their their uh, record by doing it in some, some process. And as a result of that, we covered this not too long ago, there was an article about, you know, you better rethink uh, things now that this is so easy for patients, like, you know, maybe even avoiding things like patient complains of. Rather than patient presents with because they're going to say I didn't complain I was just you know they're they're not using it in the, in the context that we use it and but it but it doesn't really or look good they they things like calling it this this diabetic patient I mean uh, or this diabetic while they're not connected to a human being it's this is a diabetic this is this is a sickle celler th- that also doesn't give the patient the problem the respect that we can. So there's a there was a whole list of phrases, which we covered uh, maybe a couple of months ago that were recommended by uh, Dr. Silverman, who's writ, who writes for uh, emergency physicians monthly. He did a nice column on that about maybe rethinking a lot of the stuff that you routinely are writing.
2: That was the, the 21st Century Cures Act. So we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of that, where patients can access their medical records electronically now in real time. Um, and I've seen that reference in another interesting context where uh, patients are being encouraged to access that, to look, to be sure that their, their billing is accurate. And one of the ways that I saw that they were encouraged to do that is to go look and see, Hey, did everything that your doctor write in there, did they actually do it? Look at the physical exam, look at the documentation and see if they actually did it because if they didn't, and you're getting billed for it, or if they ordered something you didn't need, then you can fight that. Um, and you know, as a patient that would be appealing to me, hey, if my doctor documented, they examined me and they didn't and I got a 500 bill and it could be 300 or if they ordered you know a blood test that I didn't need and I could you know get my bill knocked down, I might be interested in doing that yeah you know, and that that had some appeal to me as a patient. I'm sure it has appealed to other people that have some more time on their hands. And so I think that's something that we need to be thinking about too is you know medical necessity for what we're ordering And you know again, our use of templates for our view of systems, physical exam, kind of everything that we're templating in that medical record.
0: And, and then finally, it's, it's fighting battles in the medical record. You know, a person comes in, they've got an elevated heart score. They've got a good, they've got a good history. And you call a cardiologist who basically says no. And um, says, I'll see him in the office tomorrow or what, whatever they say. And I've seen patients, I've seen physicians document You start a bet on the medical records. You know, I implore the cardiologist, but he refuses to admit the patient, blah, blah. There's ways to document that, that we all know what happened without throwing them under the bus. Because God forbid something happens to that patient. Plaintiff med attorneys love when physicians fight battles in the record because it just pits one against the other and you both lose. Uh, Going back to what Rachel said. Remember that UCLA
1: study that we talked about, Rachel, where they looked at uh, the exams done by five senior res- uh nine senior residents on people, uh, and then doctors didn't know what they were being uh, involved in. They thought it was some kind of other study when it really was a study of what history elements they asked and what they documented, what physical ex- exam uh, components they did, and what, what they documented. And basically, the doctors, all nine of them, consistently fabricated the chart to and wound up with level fives because that's what they were you know taught but the fact of the matter is is that all the charts were fabricated in terms of the uh sp- particularly the physical exam parts they said they did this and they didn't and they and they didn't so um i think that that's not unique to these uh physicians either and it will relate to in fact the first email case that i want to do uh when when john is uh, given us the entire, Secret sauce,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say I've seen you know cases like that I've talked about previously where you know the the case uh is maybe completely or irrelevant, but somewhere the lawyer pulls out the doc the documentation and it shows you know moving all four extremities, and the patient has an amputation, or um you know the abdominal exam is basically unremarkable, and they have an ostomy, and it so it becomes apparent that this was just a template, and they could use that to show hey this doctor, you know, didn't even do this exam, whatever's in this chart is, you know, the doctor was careless and they just use that template, you know, to basically, um, you know, highlight the fact that this doctor shouldn't be trusted and it works. And so you have to be super careful to do that more careful now that the patients can access this and kind of, you know, recognize those things without going to a lawyer first to get access to them.
1: So now they say, don't lie on the record. If in terms of, Put down what you did and don't and don't do what you didn't, and and don't uh, write things in the record that demeans the patient, or, or or clearly shows that you've had an argument with another physician or a disagreement.
0: Yep, and that's it. That, I'm, that's my secret sauce. It's worked thus far. <laughs> well, I think if you were to rank those, I would think you know,
1: be nice to the patients is kind of like right at the top. It is.
2: All right. Let's gonna, go in. Oh.
1: Go, go ahead, Rachel.
2: I was just going to weigh in on that. Be kind one. Um, Cause I feel like I've found this harder and harder to do, you know, now that I'm getting old and jaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> You're really,
1: you're really old and jaded. Well, you may be a jaded, but you're not old.
2: Maybe it's COVID. I don't know. But you know, I didn't used to have an issue with this. I used to be like excited to like, I don't know, get out of the house, go to my shifts. I'd be like legitimately excited, legitimately excited. And now there are definitely days where I am not excited. And I've gone into some shifts like that with just a bad attitude. And then I, I've had some like bad patient encounters. And I think that didn't go well for me. It didn't go well for them. And so I've, I've had to kind of make it, um, more of a practice to kind of recognize that bad attitude in myself and find a way to kind of nip it in the bud, recognizing that, you know, that that's not good for anybody in this. And whether it's like, you know, centering myself in my car ahead of time, or if I have an encounter in the ED, like taking a walk down the hallway, you know, taking five minutes to go get a snack or something like finding some way to get back in the mindset of like reminding myself, Hey, this is a privilege. Life is actually pretty good here. Whatever's going on in my life that kind of put me in that funk. I need to kind of compartmentalize it and, and bring myself, you know, in a good space into this encounter because, Truly, I think, you know, that is the number one rule. I've got to be kind to them. I've got to treat them, you know, I've got to be a good human for the next five minutes for this encounter. And if I can't do that, it's not fair to them. It's not going to be good, you know, for anybody in that room. And, and so I, I also feel like that's the number one rule. And sometimes that takes a little more time and a little more effort kind of before I go into the room, but I think it's worth it.
1: Well, I think that, I think what you said is brilliant. I think that you absolutely... Uh, that's a part of the job. Doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter whether you had an argument with your, with your partner or uh, things are going bad or something like that. When you go in that department, it's, it may be really difficult, but it's not the patient's fault that you're not having a good day. And it's kind of like it, to take it out on them. And the other thing is these people are paying or their insurance company is, are, are paying concierge level prices. And they might have been waiting, but the fact of the matter is their bill's going to be sixteen hundred dollars even when you discharge them, because that's kind of what what the average turned out to be in a recent kind of thing. And it's like they're not getting necessarily concierge-level services. And I think that we should be, you know, we we generally do really well economically. And I know that there's always gripes about that, but I think we we'd we do pretty well. And I think that. You're right. It is a privilege to be doing this. Patients are counting on us to be their um, agent and we're going to take care of you. We're going to make it, we're going to do our best. You know, they get that sense. I think that that will go so far until making you having them leaving saying, uh, you know, when the patient says at the end of the visit, doctor, do you have a private practice? You just hit the ball out of the park, you know, because, that's kind of what you're looking for. You're looking for them to leave saying, geez, they, they did a good job here. Or they they were concerned, etc." And And it, and we, you know, I was a director for 25 years. It's like, if we had doctors who was not, or not too pleasant. Uh, we're not interested in the, the CEO or COO getting any complaints about the behavior or attitude of any doctors. I mean, that contract is worth millions of dollars. And the fact of the matter is, is that you know, Envision or Team Health are right at that doorstep. And so the, the idea is that um, you, you don't, you, of all things, you don't want p- uh, complaints about your attitude. All right. I think it's enough preaching for <laughs> for today. Um, I got an email that really, I think, is um, representative of a lot of, of us and doctors who are going through Working with colleagues who seem to do a really, really, really cursory exam, spend no time with the patients at all. Uh, Level five codes are coming out, you know, routinely. The scribes are uh, uncomfortable because they've been put in a precarious position because they know that this stuff was not done that's in the record. Uh, And everybody in the ED is aware of the behavior of this Uh, physician and uh, in terms of the cursory nature of their their care. um, And because of the RVU issues, they are the most uh, well-compensated doctor in the department based on their quarterly uh, reviews and RVUs. And And they make the most money and they see the most patients. So everybody's giving them a pat on the head in, in the executive suites. And this person, she is just fit to be tied as they say it's quote it eats me alive and i'm extremely frustrated every shift she goes in and works with this doctor and it's like uh what do i have an obligation to report what may be um uh falsified billing uh are there uh medical legal issues here in terms of uh, if there are, are people who are reviewing these records and audit them and basically say that this was not a uh, this was not done, or something to that effect. But I think primarily this doctor is frustrated because the patients aren't getting a fair shake. Um, and that you know the doctor hasn't gotten into into trouble, but that doesn't mean that you know they're necessarily doing the right thing. So I think that th- that th- this doctor is not alone. I think there are other doctors out there who feel likely similarly uh, uh, with colleagues that they work with and they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to approach it. These may be senior doctors in the department and uh, this doctor is thinking of leaving this job because she is so frustrated with what's going on when she works with this doctor. So we need your advice here, guys.
2: Well, first thing, the study you referenced before tells you that this is pervasive, right? That we're as a, community uh specialty level five visits are being documented almost universally even when they're not warranted we're not doing the full exam they're documenting they're not doing full review of systems and it's being documented so maybe this is an extreme example because it's a 30-second visit but we're routinely documenting kind of level five billing even when it's not happening so this is pervasive
1: john do you think that there's any kind of um obligation here for this physician to act or should she just be quiet and and bite her
0: tongue or should she leave well if it's if it's truly eating them alive um i'm not sure doing nothing is going to be serve her countenance well you know if you look at the med- different medical boards been what state she's in she may have an obligation to report i mean at least in arizona we have an obligation to report physicians who are at risk putting patients at risk You'd have a hard time making the leap of faith that this doctor is putting patients at risk. However, if she or he is doing something incredibly cursory, letting slip, things slip through their finger, that is an argument um, because she sounds dangerous. Um, you know, I guess if it were me, I would probably do the courtesy of speaking to the physician. Uh, and after that, I'd speak to the department director. And if I was the department director, we'd have a one-time-only conversation about the need for, um, integrity. And, uh, I'd see where it would shake out. Yeah. She's
1: concerned about potentially, uh, jeopardizing the contract by rocking the boat and people finding out formally that, uh, this may be a fraudulent documentation on a routine basis by this doctor. Um, and so there, there's that concern. Um, but I, I agree, somebody ought to talk to this doctor. It may not be this doctor who's frustrated, maybe it it probably should be the director. Uh, hopefully the director agrees with you because this person is the most productive person in the department. And um, so it's kind of like a, this delicate balance between productivity and um, and not doing a reasonable job for the patients. We don't have any kind of great, great advice here. (laughs) I feel bad for her because um, uh, when you read her email, you can see all of this agita coming through um, that she is looking for another job, but this might be a nice job. And, you know, the idea of being forced to leave it because of a colleague's behavior is tough. Uh, I, um, especially when she says the nurses all know, everybody knows, the scribe knows, but nobody's willing to, you know, address it.
2: I, I do think it's an important point, though, that this it is pervasive. You know, we're basically trained to do a ten point review of systems and physical exam at every patient, and that's it's ludicrous. Like, why would I do that on a patient with an ankle sprain? The reason is so you can bill for a level five, or you know, so you can maximize the billing, and that's that's ridiculous. Is that really the best thing for the patient? No. Is it the best thing for the system? Absolutely not. It's only the best thing for the people putting the money in their pockets, but that's what we're trained to do. And when you're a trainee, you don't ask, why am I supposed to do 10 point review of systems? You're just like, oh, okay, I'll do, I'll ask all those questions. You know, I'll ask you about your chest pain when you're here for your ankle sprain. And it's, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, so that's just like the system we've created and we don't ask the questions when we're learning it. And then that's just how it is, you know, so a lot of people just that they are actually asking those questions, even though that patient doesn't need them asked, that has nothing to do with why they're there. Um, and then when you ask them, why are you asking about chest pain? And they're like, well, I always do, you know, that's not really a reason. And I would say that it, it lends to a lot of waste, you know, and oh, no. in some cases it's, it's fraud because they're not asking them because they have realized like, I don't actually care if they have chest pain. I know they don't have chest pain. They're here with ankle pain.
1: But medical decision making is a determinant of what the what what level of service is be, is really being uh generated and so it's kind of like uh if you have an aqua sprain it doesn't matter what the, you document that's you know that's to some uh, at extent best to level 3
2: so, so that's not a great example but you know say you're yes. here with you know a pneumonia you don't have a whole lot of medical decision making for that either but if you're documenting the 10 point physical exam review systems you can make that into a level five, but really it's, you can, you can make it into level three, which is probably more appropriate. You know,
1: you, 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 you would be asked to leave the department if you're doing coding, I'm afraid.
2: I'm just saying like (laughs) this, this it's, it's pervasive and we learn it during training, but we don't ask enough questions to kind of really appreciate why we're doing it. So I suspect if this person leaves her current job, she's going to find, she's going to be equally frustrated at the next place.
0: The one thing I would say is misery loves company. And this is one you have to report, but if everybody knows about it, because at some point it will come out. And if you get ahead of it and fix it, the, it may be a lot better outcome than if it goes to a third party payer, for example, who does a chart, who does a chart audit mm-hmm. um, and you get hung out to dry. I think basically uh, you just can't uh, sit back.
1: You you got to do some painful things. And one of them is to talk to the director and hope that, and make it clear to the director that you think that this is a really important problem that that re- requires their action, because maybe the director will just kind of sweep it under the rug kind of thing.
2: And and to John's point, you know, they could get audited and, and the whole group could get in trouble. So if the director needs some motivation to address it, that should be it.
1: Um. We have a bunch of stuff that's in the news. All of it is, you know, very recent. I mean, I got a paper in here that came out yesterday. Uh, so that's my reason for being late this month. We had to wait for all of this stuff to come out that, that only came out at the end of the month, uh, Rachel, you want to update us on the AAEM suit against envision.
2: Sure. Okay. So is this the one that came out yesterday?
1: No, 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 this has been out a okay. while.
2: All right, right, I knew that. Um, <laughs> so, let's see. In this one, that's been out a while, that I knew all about.
1: Um, well, John knows all about it. Um,
2: I know about it now. I read about it, but if John knows all about it, you want to you want to talk about this one?
1: He's going to comment on uh, on this. All because, right, go ahead. And frankly, John, I don't know. Your contract may be an Envision contract now. I, it's not. It's just an interesting kind of thing that they're that they're doing here. I'm not necessarily taking sides on this.
2: Okay. So briefly, an emergency medicine group in California, a local independent ED group, lost its contract to a subsidiary of Envision, and so it was supported by. Um, AAEM in bringing a lawsuit against Envision. Basically,
1: well, the AAEM has a division now, which uh, provides management services for uh, ER contracts. And I think this may have been the only contract that AAEM had and they lost it.
2: Okay, so um, they basically sued after they lost this contract, saying that the, the subsidiary, the Envision subsidiary, was violating California's ban on the corporate practice of medicine.
1: Um, Is there a similar ban, John, in, uh, in Arizona about the corporate practice of
0: medicine? No, not like California or New York or Illinois or some other states. So, I yeah, mean, there's there's te- a- there technically is, it's not enforced.
1: There's a bunch of states where that's the technical rule, but in California, they take it very seriously. And obviously, the physicians, uh always want uh the hospitals not to be able to hire physicians to to do medical care. They they can hire physicians to like supervise the ICU or be the medical director of this or that department, et cetera. But in terms of direct patient care, the answer is still no.
2: And so you know as part of this lawsuit, the AEM points out that Envision is owned by a private equity firm. And as part of the contract, they uh, lay out a bunch of rules for the EM group that you know really get into the practice of medicine. So they, they make the physician sign restrictive covenants, they dictate things like where they can work, how much they can work. Um, in, in some cases, they um, kind of lay out practice processes and so get more involved in the practice of medicine than, than they believe that they're allowed to do. And so this is kind of a fresh lawsuit. And, um, you know, as you dig further in this, you can kind of, um, it's not in this article, but you can get into kind of the the business models of places like envision where they basically, um, you know, trying to avoid the idea that they're, that they are involved in the corporate practice of medicine. They will have physicians that theoretically are the medical directors of these places, but it might be like one person who, runs 200 different medical practices, but you know, just lives somewhere, has no idea what he is the medical director of, and is just kind of there in name only while Envision administers everything. And so that's basically what AAM is fighting back against. And so we have yet to be decided where this goes, but it's kind of the first of its kind.
1: Well, that's their claim. John, any thoughts?
0: Well, so no, so we have a in, so I have an, we have an independent group here in Phoenix, and then I've got tribal health, uh, you know, the kind of the EM group for IHS. So, you know, knock on wood, neither of us are owned by Envision. I think my thoughts are that Envision's in a, a little bit of trouble. You know, we all know about the Surprise Billing Act and all the laws subsequent to that. Um, you guys probably remember that Colbert, Kravis, and Robert uh, did a leverage buyout. Of Envision took them back private. I think they've got literally five billion in debt that they're having a hard time servicing right now. And so there's you know, there's some big questions of what they're gonna do. I think their long term debts trading at, you know, fifty cents on the dollar now. They're in they're in serious financial trouble. And how are they gonna get out of it? Because, you know, we had they do a lot of anesthesia staffing and with COVID, a lot of electric surgeries were canceled or all were canceled and so their anesthesiologist anesthesiology revenue hit the skids you know we all know what happened in the emergency medicine and uh and i think now they're struggling and so it'll be interesting to see how vigorously um envision fights back on this because you know they they've got a lot more to deal with than uh than this particular lawsuit Right. AAEM
1: wants no money in this. They just want to establish that Envision is uh, involved in the practice of uh, of medicine. And, and um, because they have all of these other states, and this would be a precedent that basically would m- maybe apply to other states that say um, uh, in, uh, these contract medical groups are practicing uh, medicine as a result of the victory that occurred in California, which made the case. So they just viewed as a, a, a step in the door to all of these other states where the corporate practice of medicine has been one of the big AAEM uh, issues f- for a long time with John, uh, with um, uh, McNamara and others. Uh, all right, we're gonna move on. Uh, This is about a PA whose license was suspended because of their um, activities regarding COVID. And we talked about this, I think, last month and month before about um, medical uh, boards uh, sanctioning uh, physicians. And now here's a PA being sanctioned for uh, COVID related things, primarily related to ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, masks, immunizations, those kinds of, those kinds of things. And, this is about Scott Miller, a PA who is, uh, he's fighting his, his suspension um, by the uh, Washington State Medical Board. Remember now, PAs are under the and uh, medical board, and the medical boards are not particularly interested in expanding the uh, abilities of PAs to practice independently. While the N- NPs are under the nursing board and the nursing board, I think is much more interested in getting N- NPs to be able to practice independently. So this is a medical board issue. And we've talked about these in the past. Medical board is not your friend. Basically their job, they view it as protecting the public from, uh, you know, malfeasance or be- misbehavior, alcoholism, sexual kind of contacts related to uh, patients, etc. So basically, uh, he's alleged to have done things to six patients, but you know, it's kind of like one of them was like prescribing without a good faith examination. Well, we've all prescribed without a good faith examination and doctors who have office practices, the patient calls them up at night and says, my baby has uh, is crying and they give him a, a application, you know, uh, says that ear hurts. And next thing you know, there's a uh, prescription for am- uh, amoxicillin being generated without a good faith examination, kind of thing. So it's like, I think they were picking on him, frankly, uh, on, on that. And some of these patients had COVID, and they ultimately died. And the, the issue was, you know, about ivermectin and whether you gave it or not gave it, kind of thing. Um, and so that there were spe- six specific cases. They he began a, a COVID. I mean, a COVID related. Uh, GoFundMe thing that's generated $59,000. And people are supporting uh, supporting this. Obviously, there's a whole group of people in the community that are um, supporting his points of view uh, about uh, the COVID uh, treatment. Um, but on the other side of the ledger has been this con- concern that um, this is a slippery slope. Uh, medical boards uh, need to be careful about where they go on this because there are times when we think uh somebody's theory is totally nuts when it turns out to be correct being an example being um ulcers are caused not by stress they're caused by an infection of your stomach you know what do you mean that's it that makes no most no sense we know that it's caused by stress uh, but they were wrong and so uh, that's the other side of the equation. And I think the medical boards are, are being fairly reluctant to, to uh, go after physicians. Um, I guess I think it probably depends on how egregious they are. Because the job of the medical board maybe is really to kind of pro- protect the
0: community. Well, I'm this not- seems relatively ahead, egregious. It just seems relative egregious. It's somebody who is promoting ivermectin as curative for COVID-19 and prescribing it. So, yeah, there's, there's the without an adequate examination part of it. But there's also the piece of this, which is just, you know, placing something out there in the mainstream that has no scientific evidence behind it. And you're right. Maybe this will be another example of the... Uh, uh, of the ulcer, uh, taking a long time to get properly diagnosed, but my, my sense is no. Well,
1: I think there's a, actually, a, there, there were some studies in the beginning that were kind of the, uh, pro, um, ivermectin. And then, but the more recent ones have really put the nail on the coffin of this, uh, uh this completely and well-done studies that have been, you know, pe- carefully peer-reviewed, et cetera, that have, come out in the last actually in the last month Rachel any thoughts yeah I mean I don't really have an
2: issue I don't have really have an issue with the Scott Miller thing um you know the board has more leeway than the law because it's Mm -hmm. really enforcing professionalism standards and so they feel he violated their standards of professionalism and it wasn't just about prescribing ivermectin you know he was he was harassing and threatening healthcare workers, hospitals, sending threatening emails. He lied on his licensing application to the board. He was prescribing controlled substances without a physician approval and without examination. So, he there were multiple instances of him violating their professional standards. So, you know, people might want to make it about his ivermectin prescriptions, but it was about a lot more than that. And I think, you know, there the media has made it about ivermectin because that's sexier, but it wasn't about that.
1: I think that the, the boards are trying to be careful, but fundamentally, their job is to protect the public. And if somebody's behaving in such a way that they're advocating therapy that that uh, would be is being used in, in lieu of other therapy that may be viewed as uh, uh, appropriate, then they're, they're 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 hurting the public.
2: Well, and in the setting of a pandemic, you know, when people are kind of there was this anti you know doctor kind of movement for quite a while. And things like this were were contributing to that. And I think that the board has the right to step in and say, this is not something we're going to support or allow. And again, it's not the law. So people are saying, well, he didn't break the law. That's right. Nobody's saying you broke the law. Nobody's putting him in jail. But they have the right to say, this is not somebody we want to continue law practice medicine right now. It's a privilege. They took it away.
1: Um- the verdict on the nurse who gave the vecuronium ver- instead of ver said uh, came out a couple of days ago. It's March 25th. Um, she was found guilty, and there's all kinds of stuff coming out now about nurses saying, "Geez, uh, you know, uh, uh, is this going to apply to me? Uh, if I make a make a mistake, uh, those kinds of things, should I should I be reluctant to?" Uh, report mistakes or those kinds of things that this would have a chilling effect on the behavior of nurses with regards to reporting and uh etc et any thoughts she hasn't been sentenced yet that's coming up in may but um the medical community on the nursing side is really looking at this as some kind of precedent that they're afraid of
2: i guess i understand their concern to be honest the kind of criminalization of medical errors. And I feel like we're not quite given enough details in at least the stories I've been able to see to understand why this was a criminal case when others have not been. And my sense is that this was more egregious for a number of reasons, the way that I've kind of seen it alluded to, but I haven't actually seen the details listed out to kind of have a good understanding of why it fit into a separate category.
0: Yeah, the what I read about it, it sounded, they described it as egregious and that there was multiple instances where it could have gone the other way, but through negligence or purposeful disregard, it didn't. And again, like Rachel, I didn't, I, don't have, I didn't see all the evidence, but it seemed like it was more than just, hey, I gave the wrong medication. They both started with V's and now I'm being put in jail. It seemed like it was a little bit worse than that.
1: Yeah, I think some of it related to uh, her evaluation of the patient uh, after the medicine was given, and it was kind of like not uh, appropriately uh, done uh, as the patient was having these, you know, symptoms of being paralyzed. Uh, So, yeah, you know, we had an anesthesiologist. There's a line when it's crossed, and it is viewed as egregious, where it goes from, malpractice to criminal, uh, where you can go to jail for it. And this lady can go to jail and she, she probably will get some jail time. Uh, this is an anesthesiologist was, um uh, supervising a bunch of, uh, uh, of anesthetists, uh, what are they? Anesthetists and, uh, was negligent in the practice of supervising them so that one person had a very bad outcome, and uh, it was thought that this was egregious and he was criminally charged. Uh, now, I don't honestly know what the outcome of that case was because once it once it was announced, man, everybody hushed up this case. There was no more talk about it at the hospital. You know, we didn't know what the issue was in terms of the outcome, but, but you can screw it up bad enough that you will potentially go to jail, and this, this case is an example of that.
2: Somebody will get mad at me for drawing this parallel, but eh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the case of the emergency physician who got arrested for assaulting the patient when he was doing the hand drop test. The patient who was like faking unresponsiveness, it was verbally, allegedly
1: verbally, uh, uh, very kind of like, uh- demeaning the patient and calling the patient uh, negative yeah, and
2: ended up like you know hitting her on the face yeah. essentially yeah. and you know the at least i gotta move the conversation to clearly you know this is a patient or a physician who he didn't have any complaints or anything against him prior to that he kind of snapped and yes he sh- this was terrible of him he should not have done this he should be penalized whatever but like also it reflects what's going on in our society right now and like the terrible place that physicians are in that this guy snapped on this poor patient. And we need to recognize that physicians are, you know, struggling and kind of reflect on the mental health issues of physicians as well. And, you know, this nurse, a lot of the chatter I've been hearing about this case among nurses is like, well, you know, of course this happened because nurses are super stressed right now and they're under a ton of pressure they're overworked so they're going to make mistakes and you know it's not the nurse's fault this is just it's a system's fault and you know I think the parallel is like yes if you put people in a bad situation they can potentially snap but if they cross the line whether it's like assaulting the patient or getting to the point where you just like don't care to the point that you're going to ignore 10 red flags. And, you know, when the patient starts seizing, you're just going to walk away at some point you've crossed the line where it becomes criminal. And I think, you know, potentially in both those cases that line was crossed, but I do feel like the medical community maybe deserves a little, like maybe some more details so that people aren't so alarmed that gosh, th- could this happen to me? Cause I think that those details are there. We just haven't heard them.
1: Right. That's probably true. Um, there's, there's um, probably more to it than we know. Yeah. Uh, what do we have here left here? Oh, yeah, threatening healthcare workers is now a felony in the state of uh, Wisconsin. Uh, that's kind of interesting, actually. Uh, in fact, it's called a Class H felony. Six years or up to uh, a $100,000 fine. Utah has a new law, but it's still a misdemeanor. Um, Maryland and New Jersey have introduced legislation targeting threats, but not not just battery. Uh, so I think that the uh, legislatures are starting to respond to doctors and nurses being, um, you know, assaulted and threatened, and um, and and you can see some of that in that you know when patients were dying with. COVID and there were no no family members allowed in any anywhere near them kind of thing that you could understand some people saying, you know, I'm going to go in and see my dad and uh, that it could get a little, um, a little interesting, um, any thoughts?
2: I mean, this is actually an area that I would like to talk about a little bit more. And I don't know if I have a good understanding of it actually. Um, and I was seeing some interesting chatter about this on EM docs talking about, I guess, kind of ruining the fact that we don't really have a place or I guess, uh, we don't really have any backup for this. You know, there are patients who come in and, and are regularly assaulting or threatening to emergency physicians. And basically they're told, Hey, you better not do that again. Then they come in the next day. And because of MTALA, we're basically told you got to go in and see them and, and we feel like we have to do that, and there's no recourse. And I'm wondering if that's really true. Is there kind of a point at which we can say we don't, we're not going to see you? Um,
1: we're afraid of you.
2: Yeah, you're not allowed here anymore. You've, you know, you've crossed the line too many times. You know what? At what point can't do? Physicians have the right to protect themselves, and emergency physicians in particular, because I think this this really is fairly unique to emergency physicians. You know, everybody with an office can say. Nope. Don't want to do it.
0: This has to be, this had, I would suspect in some case somewhere, and we can look this up, Rach, this has to have been an issue. Where some EM doc, it was like, no, I'm not going to go in and see this person because of X. Rational, reasonable, or not, who knows. And then see how that shook out. But you would certainly think fear for your life is a pretty darn good reason uh, that trumps Mtala. If it's legitimate, if it's a legitimate fear, I can't imagine it doesn't. But God knows, we've all been surprised.
2: But then I can imagine the the doctor, you know, so maybe the the patient's not going to sue them under imtala. You know, doesn't have the wherewithal to. But then I could, as a physician, I would be worried that the employer is going to retaliate against me. You know, how dare you put us in that position of violating imtala? You know, you're out. Big
1: deal. Yeah very big deal when it whenever the they thing uh, is um coming to your hospital uh the hospital is basically wide open no matter what they can look at anything that they want it's a uh, they they need a lawyer up it's a big deal and uh the thre- the the threshold to uh bring the the amtala people in is really pretty low
2: yeah, although I-, I
1: don't know did you see the case yesterday where a woman Claims that she she was pregnant was going went to the ER and they wouldn't see her. I mean that was the whole reason that Imtala began and this is what she's claiming uh, as of yesterday. And I have no, no no details, but it did make the the the, the news. Hmm. Well, we'll we'll see more about that. I'm sure down the road. Hey, listen, guys. Any anything else before we sign off?
2: Did we get our full hour and a half?
1: We, we I don't know that we need an hour, hour yeah, and a okay. half. We could, we I don't know how long this is gone to tell you the truth. I've enjoyed it. Uh what time did we start? By the time this whole thing we, began with we had all kinds of technical difficulties getting Greg onto the line. So we decided that we would just uh
2: I think it's been an hour.
1: Oh, that's okay. That's okay. okay. That's all
2: right. I thought we were going to get another half hour of John's life advice.
1: Well, he, actually, we took up, <laughs> we took up a half hour of his time just getting started before before a word was said in this thing. So I'm going to thank John for uh, participating. I think it added a lot, John and uh, Rachel. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you. I uh, hope to see you guys soon. Uh, get back to Arizona. Otherwise, signing off. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.